from Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. A week ago, we learned about a Maryland man's admiration of the Islamic State organization, how they beheaded people and attacked civilians abroad. This man, Rondell Henry, began thinking about his own activity, thinking about his own plot, right here in the Washington area at the National Harbor. He told his landlord he was going to break his lease a couple days before this happened, which is also just interesting. Um, So it suggests that he may not have expected to survive if anything took place. That's what prosecutors say. They say he wanted this truck so he could mow people down. He did not plan on surviving the attack. On this episode of Target USA, we talk about what we know about what led to the plot, what happened during the plot, and how authorities deal with situations like this. Coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. Rondell Henry was arrested in Prince George's County, Maryland, on the 28th of March. And this came after some extraordinary cooperation between local, federal, and state law enforcement and a stroke of luck as well. He was going to take a U-Haul that he had stolen and run down people at the National Harbor, which is an entertainment venue just outside of Washington, D.C. And we've talked about terror threats before here on this program, and we've also talked about how it seemed as though there was a lull. But we've also been warned that that lull at some point was going to come to an end. This was that. And in this particular situation, we want to take a look back at what took place and how it all ended up. We start off with my esteemed colleague, Megan Cloherty, a very credible and talented reporter here at WTOP Radio. Megan covered his court appearance. Okay, Megan, what did you learn in the courtroom from this situation? We learned a lot more detail about the timeline of this thing. We learned that Rondell Henry walked off his job um, at 12.30 in the afternoon and then just started driving around, according to prosecutors, looking for a large vehicle. He found that vehicle in a U-Haul and started trailing somebody, allegedly, following that person to Alexandria. The guy gets out of the U-Haul, kind of realizes he's being followed, and reports it immediately to police when Henry, they say, jumps in the car and and takes it, jumps Mm -hmm. in the truck and takes it. Um, Then he, the next morning, at five in the morning, prosecutors say they have surveillance of him casing security at Dulles Airport. Mm -hmm. Spends two hours there just looking for crowds to grow, according to them. And then he goes to National Harbor, where prosecutors say he was looking for crowds to grow this entire time. He never found enough people, is what they say, to have his attack mm-hmm. mean something. So they say he broke into a boat, stayed overnight in the boat, and then that's when Prince George's County Police arrested him, thinking that he had just broken into a boat, not realizing maybe at that moment mm-hmm. 
what they had. Um, we also learned a little bit about his background. He's from Trinidad and Tobago, a naturalized citizen. Um, he told his landlord he was going to break his lease a couple days before this happened, which is also just interesting. Um, so it suggests that he may not have expected to survive if anything took place. That's what prosecutors say. They say he wanted this truck so he could mow people down. He did not plan on surviving the attack. And he was seeking publicity mm. for his crime. Mm-hmm. Um We also learned that um, he made admissions to federal and local investigators saying, you know, that he had planned to do this in the name of ISIS. He had been inspired by the Islamic State. He felt that, you know, Muslims have been persecuted and someone has to pay. Um, But then his attorney said, you know, he didn't he didn't do anything. He had the opportunity at Dulles Airport at National Harbor to have driven into crowds of people and he didn't do it. So. It's interesting that there is no terrorism charge here. The only charge is transporting a stolen vehicle across state lines. Yeah. Which spent a lot of time in custody just for that charge. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and his attorney argues he was in custody for 24 hours before he was charged. So that begs the question then, based on what he was charged with and how he was essentially depicted in court. Mm hmm. Um, is there a departure from what authorities had hoped for in terms of the charging and in terms of the posturing of their case, the prosecutors? They were hammering home that he was a very, very dangerous person. If the judge let him out, he will kill people. That's what the prosecutor said. And the judge did decide to detain him. He did decide to detain him. However, it's worth noting he has no criminal record, no history of mental illness. Now, that doesn't mean that something hasn't happened in the last few months. But um, yeah, I mean, the U.S. attorney, the assistant U.S. attorney Thomas Wyndham said he wanted bloodshed. He wanted chaos. He wanted panic. I mean, there was no mincing words here. Um, his defense, Michael Sotaramanis said, you guys are pushing a narrative here. He said, as part of his statement, Henry said he saw children and families smiling and laughing at National Harbor, and he didn't feel they were responsible for the Muslim suffering, and he decided not to do it. So it was interesting to, you know, you Mm -hmm. went in with with only hearing really the prosecutor's um, allegations, and then you hear, well, you know, he he and his wife just separated. And so that's why he gave notice at his apartment building, because he couldn't handle the lease. I mean, they're, so they it, had, not everything is had, as damning as it may sound. They had know? alibis for all of that. They did. And there's is there a possibility that uh, the situation, his domestic situation, which in many cases I've learned over the years, often can can cause people to do things that we consider irrational. Is there any thought being given to that maybe what happened with this individual? At least was it communicated in court? The only time his wife was mentioned was in relationship to the, the lease. They did say, the prosecutor said that in his statement, Henry said he wanted to spend more time with his family in the days leading up to this plan because he didn't think he was going to see them again. So I think he does have a support system. Mm-hmm. His mom had volunteered to be a person who would, you know, watch over him or be a, a steward of the court, if you will, while he was, if he was released to um, home detention, which he was not. So I think, you know, while his marital situation wasn't stable, it sounds like he'd been, I mean, he'd been in the U.S. for 11 years. Mm-hmm. He had a job. He has a family here. So I don't think that plays as much as it might in another case. As you might imagine, none of the law enforcement authorities involved want to talk about the case because it's an open and ongoing case. But they're more than happy to talk about what they've done and what they've achieved 
in dealing with situations like this one. And it's not easy to deal with. What they've had to do is to think outside of the proverbial box, if you will, create some new things and do some things differently. Hank Stowinski is police chief in Prince George's County. Well, firstly, we set about reinventing this police department in 2011 and creating new structures that are contemporary to the issues facing not just our county, but our country. And one of those things was to create the Bureau of Homeland Security. So a deputy chief is responsible for that bureau, and under that bureau rests responsibility for following up on a host of different kinds of threats, but certainly the kind of threat that we dealt with at National Harbor is one of those. That component includes detectives that are detailed to the FBI as part of the Joint Terrorism Task Force, and we have those detectives working cases with FBI agents running down leads, not just in Prince George's County, but across the region, and they are integrated with the Bureau, so we're aware of any intelligence that comes to the region, frankly, comes to the country, Um, and beyond that, we have a detective assigned to Interpol, so we have another way of looking at intelligence that comes in from around the world. Those are the principal means by which we remain aware of potential threats to the county. Beyond that, we've done an assessment of all of our infrastructure, so National Harbor, but certainly FedEx Field, University of Maryland. Uh, There's several federal facilities within Prince George's County, NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, the Census Bureau, the IRS. And both at the district level and at the Bureau of Patrol level, we look at those sites. We have relationships with the leadership there. And again, we look at physical infrastructure. We look at, for instance, coming back to National Harbor, the extensive surveillance and security measures they've put in place. And then we work in tandem with them to ensure that our presence, our ability to patrol, to respond to issues. But then behind that lies this Bureau of Homeland Security, which is following up on leads and ensuring that we're contemporary with any threats. This is our daily work. One of the questions I got was, What are we going to do different now that we are aware of this threat? Give us a sense of how difficult plots like that at National Harbor are involving an alleged lone wolf, how difficult they are to stop. Well, and I think the acting special agent in charge of the Baltimore field officer, Jennifer Moore, said they pose the greatest threat to us. And I agree with her and my FBI on that point. Beyond that, however, we have a community that is engaged with us. We have the ability to access intelligence information that comes from all of the local police departments. People call in suspicious behavior. They call in concerns. We follow up on all of that. So it's very difficult if it's just the police department. But when you are working in collaboration with your community, when you're collaborating with law enforcement literally around the world, and again, I point back to our our officers assigned to both the FBI and assigned to Interpol, then we have access to that information. And then we take every single threat that we get seriously, whether it's a threat in one of our schools, a threat to attack infrastructure, a threat to do anything at all. And that's what this group that I'm speaking about does on a daily basis. Is it impossible? No. Do we have the opportunity to miss 
no, we, we have to be right every single time. But again, I'm very proud of the fact that we have a very engaged group of people. And I only point back to a couple of weeks ago when our patrol officers apprehended one of the FBI's 10 most wanted. We culturally are asking deeper questions. We're going beyond what's apparent. And both that and this National Harbor point to the culture in this department of being inquisitive and asking questions so that we understand fundamentally everything that's occurring, not just what is apparent. Okay, how would you characterize the terrorism threat in Prince George's County, specifically and the national capital region as a whole? Well, I think we have to acknowledge that anybody who wants to create a lot of attention would look at Washington, D.C., because it's the seat of our nation. They would look at New York City. They would look at Los Angeles. They're going to look at big cities. What we acknowledge in Prince George's County is that we are proximate to Washington, D.C. We border the nation's capital. We, if something should happen at National Harbor, God forbid, the world is going to have that presented to them as an attack on our nation's capital. So we put ourselves in that headspace, and we have put all of those pieces that I've mentioned in place as a result of that. So as a result of this case, what might you be doing differently in the future? Well, no, and that's, again, if I can digress for a second, when I was very early in my career, I had a tremendous lesson from uh, one of the doctors, the medical examiner's office. Her name was Ann Dixon, and I was doing work down there. And this is when HIV was um, not well understood and was spreading through our communities. And we would have patients come in who had, had passed away, And you would know in advance if they were afflicted with HIV. And one day, doctor was getting ready to do something, and I said to Dr. Dixon, you know, be careful, this one's positive. And she said, Hank, you don't know which ones are and which ones aren't. You have to be careful the same way with all of them. And that's honestly the conversation that underpins what we've been doing for the last several years around this issue. Again, you ask, is Prince George's County a viable terrorist target. I think any community in America can be. I think because we sit next to the nation's capital, we have to be more vigilant than some other communities do. But we have to be prepared and we have to be doing good work daily, understanding proximity and understanding the nature of that threat. So it's what we've been doing consistently that led to the events of two weeks ago. And we're going to continue to do that work Um, But it's not something that you start and it's not something you respond to. It's something that you're constantly cognizant of and you're constantly prepared for. And we always begin our conversations around these issues with let's acknowledge that this can happen here. Let's not assume that it won't happen here. And then let's work to understand what the threat is and then let's work to mitigate it. That's Hank Stowinski, Prince George's County, Maryland, police chief. And you heard him make a reference to the acting special agent in charge of the Baltimore field office of the FBI. Jennifer Moore is her name. We spoke to her about what the biggest threat to the region is and how they view it and deal with it. The FBI's mission is to protect the American people and uphold the Constitution of the United States. We further delineate that down within each field office and across all 56 field offices, our top priority is to protect the United States from a terrorist attack. So that's the same focus that we have here in Maryland and Delaware. Um, Our special agents, intelligence analysts, and professional staff 
work this priority every single day. And so we have a very distinctive cadre that do that, that specialize in that, that become subject matter expertise in this specific area. Um, but the greatest threat that we are facing right now is the homegrown violent extremists, and that's across the United States. And again, these are those individuals who self-radicalize at home and who are prone to attack with little or no warning. Mm-hmm. Do you, to follow up on that really quickly, do you see any, uh, is there anything unique about the, the threat in this region as opposed to any other region around the country? Is there anything specific about folks' threats in this region? No, again, we see the, it's very similar here that we see across all mm-hmm. uh, regions of the United States. It's still singularly that homegrown violence extremists. And the difficulty with them is that self-radicalization because they tend to do it alone. So you don't always see it mm-hmm. in advance. It becomes very difficult. And I think part of that is being that they're doing it alone. There's nobody else out there that might talk about it, what they're doing or no leaks or anything like that. Is that what I hear you saying? That's where it becomes very difficult, and that's where we have to be truly plugged into our community. Yes, sir. Right. So what does the FBI in Baltimore do on a regular basis to stay out in front of violent extremist threats? Um, We utilize our Joint Terrorism Task Force for sharing intelligence amongst all of our federal, state, and local partners. So for background, the Joint Terrorism Task Forces are made up of just that, local, state, and federal agencies who've all come together and said that our greater mission of protecting the United States, or here specifically in Delaware and Maryland, um, is the whole is greater than the single one. So, you know, we're stronger together, right? We bring everybody's resources, everybody's tools. Each of us have a little different nuance that we're super special at. And when you put all of us together, that's a strong force to reckon with. Um, And the purpose, again, of that JTTF is simply to leverage the resources, skills, and the authorities of each of those departments, federal, state, or local, to combat these terrorism threats. How, How does technology help you in your quest these days? Technology is imperative to every single thing that we do. We, as you know, we are, it's the greatest enabler and the greatest inhibitor as well. As technology continues to advance and further and progress, you know, we are constantly trying to lean forward and stay in front of it. It's a challenge and it's also a great asset for being able to search things. Mm -hmm. Um, So what are some of the basic things the public can do to help prevent terror attacks? Well, we absolutely cannot do that without the community support and involvement. We ask the public to remain vigilant and report any suspicious activity that they see to law enforcement. If they find someone's behavior unusual, we want them to let us know and not be afraid to let us know. We don't judge those individuals off of that. We're appreciative of it. Again, we're not beside someone every day in a home. We don't work beside someone every day in the, you know, a cubicle. We don't come across these people regularly at baseball games or our children's sporting events or schools, that type of thing. But the community does. And so we need that community to be watching for those things and reporting on when something isn't right. And it's that feeling that you get the back of the hair, you know, the hair on the back of your neck stands up. It's that, that intuitive thing to not be afraid to let us know what they're fearful of. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, Again, what we always ask is if you see something, say something, and we will do something. Okay. Is there anything I haven't asked you about that you think is important that you'd like to share? No, I think that's it. I think really that that 
closing comment about the support from the community. We can't do this alone. We have to do it as a group. It's all hands on deck by everyone to protect the whole country. It just can't fall to one individual or one law enforcement agency. I will also add Mm -hmm. that the Maryland Coordination and Analysis Center here, we have a strong partnership with them, and they have been integral in everything that we do as far as information sharing throughout the state here in Maryland. How do they work? How does the Maryland coordination, again, they're they're the same concept of a joint type task force. Um, I think they're a fusion center, so they they bring all that information together, they crunch it down, they keep it resources, and they constantly research it and update people across the states with bulletins and information whenever anything is popping or needs to be shared. And that is within the the select uh, community of the FBI. It's not bulletins that they share with anybody. It's law enforcement, right? They share with law enforcement, yes, law enforcement-centric. That's Jennifer Moore, acting special agent in charge of the Baltimore field office of the FBI. And I want to play something for you from a couple of weeks ago on our podcast, just to remind you that this was coming and we were warned about it. Bruce Alexander, president of Security One Solutions, was talking about what happened in New Zealand several weeks ago with an individual who conducted a mass casualty attack and was successful in streaming some of it on on social media. He gave us a warning that something like this might be coming. It is the theater in which is being deliberately selected to create this maximum publicity enabled by technology. So whereas before, and I'm thinking of of, uh, Saifula in New York who ran the individuals, ran people down on the streets, much more focused, much more narrow, much more sending a message in that particular case against a set of targets. In this case, we have a difference in that we have a backdrop of individuals that are deliberately selecting targets with getting mass casualties, but also the ability to use technology to sort of enhance that message. So it's almost, I I hate to say the cliche, but it's almost a combination of the theater of the macabre as well as some sort of statement in this case extremism both coming together you often have to ask yourself or at least i ask myself what's really the bigger motivating factor here is it the desire to inflict mass casualties or is it the desire to get infamy or notoriety and in this case we're seeing them both coming together perhaps the worst kind because the next person who's going to be motivated by this is going to seek to get beyond 50 and to have multiple, I I want to say almost a a media production while they're carrying out these acts. That's Bruce Alexander, president of Security One Solutions. We would like to thank our other guest on the program today, WTOP reporter Megan Cloherty. Also, Prince George's County, Maryland, Police Chief Hank Stowinski and acting special agent in charge of the Baltimore field office of the FBI, Jennifer Moore. It was a great understanding that they gave us of what took place, where we're going, and what we need to do as a nation to protect ourselves against the threat that's becoming much more sophisticated and something very difficult to stop. That's it for this episode. Coming up on our next program, The Mueller Report, The National Security Impact. 
My greater concern is that, in fact, that there'll be interpretable items in the Mueller report, which will validate this drumbeat of criticism out of the White House uh, directed against the women and men uh, of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Also, what will the U.S.'s adversaries learn from the report that they can use against the nation? That's coming up on the next episode of Target USA. In the meantime, as always, thank you very kindly, and I greatly appreciate your allowing me to spend some time with you. If you have any questions or comments about the program, send me an email at jgreen at wtop.com. That's the letter J, the color green, one word, at wtop.com. That's Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa, wtop.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at TUSA Podcast. That's Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast at TUSA Podcast on Twitter. Also, sign up for our newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff, where you can read about a lot of this kind of material that we talk about on the program, but you get a lot more in-depth and a lot of exclusive information. That's Inside the Skiff, and you can sign up at WTOP.com. That's WhiskeyTangoOscarPapa.com slash alerts. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Winter is coming, so it's time to join Survivor's Rob Sesterino on post-show recaps as he brings you the highlights of the biggest television event of the year. Download new episodes of post-show recaps every week on Apple Podcast and Podcast One. Dragons not included. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.